Thanks for having me back. It's good to be with you. It's my pleasure to continue in a series that you are already in. And as we go through in this message of In the Meantime, I'm going to use Acts 14 as our text. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 14. And while you're doing that, there is a book. It's called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And in this book, he writes this particular passage. We who lived in the concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts, comforting others, giving away their last pieces of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing. The last of his freedoms is to choose his own attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And as I was looking at this series that you're in, in the meantime, I saw that there's an attitude about how we experience life. It can make us or it can break us. As a pastor, I had this unique opportunity to be in people's lives in their worst possible moments. Every tragedy, every heartbreak, those moments of loss and challenge and death and divorce, uh, the pastor gets to come into that and be involved in that part of your life, which is Kind of a wild thought. You don't really think of that when you say, I want to be a pastor, when you talk to God. You don't think that you're in everyone's worst moments. And in those moments, they're looking to you and, and they're, they're expecting just this incredible word, that magic word or prayer that's going to just make it all better. And many times, we have that magic word, and it's just so awesome to say it. But then there's those few times in which we don't have the right words because it's awful. And every question that you're asking, every question of why, why this, why now, why that person, it's like, yeah, I agree. I don't understand it either. And we lift it back up to God and say, man, I, I don't get it. And I think we may not get it until we're with him in heaven and actually talking to him about it. And when we look at that and we see this, this part of our life, I remember as a youth pastor very early on, I got this phone call that no person should ever get in their life. And as I'm at this camp, I get this phone call about this, this kid that I had been investing into. And this particular kid, uh, I kept investing, 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 spending time with him, and he would get on fire for God. He would get so excited. He would join every Bible study. He would he'd be pumped up about what God would do with his life. And then all of a sudden, he would disappear. And I would have to ask, like, what happened to Sonny? And as he's out there in the world, something would switch in his mind, and he would become a completely different person. And it would just be off the rails of who he was and what he was doing. But then he would come back. You know, we'd find him and bring him back, and then he'd get excited about God again and be on fire and do all the, the, the awesome stuff that's going on. And then he would slip away, and I'd be like, dude, this guy's killing me. This is a roller coaster of a relationship. And then I'm at camp, and I get this phone call, and this phone call is basically while this kid was on one of his away times, one of his off-the-normal-path times. He was up. He was cliff diving. He jumped off into the water. He hit the water wrong. It, it took all his breath away, and people jumped in to try and catch him, but he just sunk too fast. And this kid passed away. And in that moment, I have to drive down and talk to the family. And then I go back up to camp because his two sisters are at camp. And I have to talk to his two sisters in this moment. 
And he's supposed to be there. He should be at this camp. And as I'm talking to him, you're, you're thinking, what possible words can I give these two sisters and this family? It was the worst funeral I've ever done in my life. Because as I'm doing this funeral, I'm thinking, man, this kid was back and forth. What do I even say about this particular time in this person's life? And there have been many moments as a pastor. And, you know, sometimes you have the right answer, the right verse, the right prayer. But other times, you don't. And you don't always have the right thing to say in that moment. But in this series, one of the things that you're learning is there is something much more powerful than the right answer, even the right prayer in that moment. It's this thing that we kind of call the fellowship of suffering. It may have come up in other of these messages, but the fellowship of suffering is this particular, like, magical, special, unique thing that we have in this world. The fellowship of suffering is this natural bond between those that have suffered deeply and those that are going through the same, similar, deep suffering as that person. So what I mean by that is as a pastor, as a family, even as a friend, you come up to someone and you try and give the right words, but you can't. But this complete stranger, someone that they don't know each other's name, someone who has gone through something similar, suffered the same deep loss, can come up and there's a natural bond that immediately happens. Any of you know what I'm talking about? Like there's this immediate automatic bond between two people that have suffered the same tragedy. And all of a sudden, there's this feeling of, uh, it's almost like this galvanizing steel type of feeling of, you know what? I've been where you are. I've gone through what you've gone through. You're going to survive. Because the other person in that moment is saying, oh, I don't even know how I can go on in life. How am I ever going to be happy again? Am I ever going to feel good about life again. I don't see it. I can't imagine ever being over this moment in my life and being in the next moment and actually being able to continue on and be okay. I cannot see that. And someone comes along who has suffered the same loss, the same difficulty, gone through the same thing, and gives them just a little bit of comfort that says, I've been there. I know what you're facing. I know what you're going through. You will survive. And it's not empathy. It's not some kind of uh, magical, like, the right thing that they're saying. It's just this interesting, this fellowship of suffering sort of thing where they were there, they know what I'm dealing with, and if they made it, I can make it. The fellowship of suffering. This galvanizing power that's out there, each one of us can offer that to people. It's something that, that God has given us. It's, this, it's amazing how God has created us. We have this to give to others. As we look at Acts 14, I want you to see a couple of missionaries. I want you to see how they respond to life that's being thrown at them and how they should probably have responded but don't because they believe in God's power in their life. And because they press through it, because they face it directly, and understand who God is, it's words and a moment in time and something that people have looked at for thousands of years and been galvanized by it. Listen how this starts. It's Acts 14, verse 1. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. 
There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against their brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. Notice something right here at the beginning. When they encountered resistance... When they encountered this, this difficulty, they didn't run. I mean, they're there. I mean, it has to be incredibly, like, annoying. You're there sharing about Christ. You're not, like, trying to sign them up for Amway or something. You're trying to show them the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, this incredible gift from God. It's like, I want to give you something so great. And what happens People who should know better, people who should be on their side, are the very ones who are then riling up the crowd against them. So much so that they're like trying to get them to want to murder these guys. That's how strong this, this dynamic is. And you have to be there going, uh, I'm just trying to give something that is so powerful and loving and a gift that is incredible. And instead of love back from those that should be giving it, I'm actually, they're actually going around poisoning the minds of everyone I'm talking to and trying to get them to murder us. Murder, right? I mean, this isn't just a little bit of pushback. It's murder pushback. That we have to catch how, how the situation that they're in. And it would be very, I think we'd be okay with it if they said, okay, this city's, this city's weird. I'm going to go ahead and move to the next city but that's not what they do. They press in. They push even harder because they know that God has created them. They know that God has a plan. Basically, in the midst of, in the meantime, set of circumstance, they realize, as we have learned through this series, that God says he's not absent in our difficult moments. He is not apathetic to what we are facing. And God is not angry with us. That's not why these things are happening. Instead, they understood that God had a plan for their life, so they press in and continue on. Check out verse 4. The people of the city were so divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with the leaders to mistreat them, which is an interesting <laughs> phrasing on that, and stone them, which is kind of like murder. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the good news. So they kept pressing in until murder is so strong that they continue to move into the outer countryside and the cities that are surrounding. They're about 20 miles away. But they pressed on because they understood that God had a purpose of why they were there. Why they were there. And they knew that they were part of the story. And because they knew they were part of the story, they knew that God had created them for purpose. This is what happens when people believe that nothing is impossible for their God. Verse 8. In Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet, who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. And at that, the man jumped up and began to walk. There is a miracle, and it's such a powerful miracle that from this point till verse 19, all the people are trying to like praise them as gods. Talk about dramatic difference. 
from murder to now you are God. Like, like they're angry about it. They're like ripping their clothes saying, please stop calling us God. And there's a lot of history, a lot of history we can't go into of why they would call them gods and the particular gods that they called them. It's very interesting history. Maybe uh, not for everyone, but it is very interesting history. And so they go from murder to now you are my God. And they're like, Paul and Barnabas are all, you are going to get us in so much trouble. If you continue to call us God, God does not look well at that. Please stop. And they're begging them to stop. And it goes on to verse 19. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking that he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and he went back into the city. Sorry, what? Right? This is my, my most favorite two verses of the Bible, which is not true, but these are like my favorite two verses of my Bible because I look at this and I go, man, it's two verses, but there's so much going on there that is unbelievable. There's so many layers to what's happening here. The first layer that I see here is how insignificant miracles are. We always sort of say in our head, like, if God, if, oh, if God would just do this, man, everyone would follow him. If, they, if he healed that person at this time, my entire family would follow him forever. You know, we have all these sort of like prayers in our head that if there was these miracles that happened, that would make all the difference in the world. And yet, most of the time, you look through the Bible, miracles had a very short lifespan. Yeah, they healed the guy, he's walking, and everyone's worshiping them as gods. And we're like, yeah, see, miracles work. Yeah, for a few verses, until someone else walks up and says, you know what? We should murder these guys. And it's murder again. It's always murder. Let's murder these guys. And so they're like, okay. And they pick up stones and they start throwing at them. So is, are miracles as powerful as we think? Even God tells us that they're not. I mean, God then comes as a person down and does miracles for us. And we still put him on the cross. In fact, as he leaves, he says, the true power, the true power in this world is when I come back and dwell within you. You're going to do far greater things than we've ever done. Whatever you've read in the Bible, every miracle you've seen, you're going to do far greater things. The power, the real life-changing power in the world is when we step up and be who Christ called us to be. When we begin to let the Holy Spirit guide us in our daily walk, that is what changes lives. We always think a miracle would do it, but over and over we see it's, it's quite the opposite. It's a very short lifespan on miracles. The second layer is how okay we would be is if <laughs> when Paul's out there and he gets up, first of all, we'd be like, oh, dude, you survived, which means he got hit really hard. The rocks must have really hurt, right? Because they think he's dead. So we'd be okay if he got up and he goes, you know, I think that's a closed door, right? Because that's how we always pray. God, open and close the doors. You know, and if rocks are being thrown at me, that's probably a closed door. I'm going to go ahead and look for the open doors. We'd be okay with that. In fact, if we read that, we'd be like, yeah, okay, I get it. Or we'd be okay if he said, you know, God, I think I've completely missed. I'm just going to go back and regroup. We'd be like, yeah, yeah, you just, you just had rocks thrown at your head. I understand regrouping here, and I'm okay with that verse. We'd even be okay. Actually, we'd be probably ecstatic if he said, I'm going to move on to the next city. 
right. We'd be totally fine with that. That makes sense. But what he says is he goes back in. He goes right back to where they tried to kill him. I am stunned by that. It, it, it encourages me, kind of. It's, it's, it's kind of a weird encouragement. It's more like a scary sort of, okay, no matter what, we got to keep pressing on. And our whole closed, open door prayers, we got to be careful with those. Those aren't always what we think they are. Keep pressing into what God has called you to be. Know who he created you to be. And the third layer of this is the response. Look at verse 21. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples, encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Yeah, I would think so. I think that he's made that evidently clear. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Catch all that's happening there. Don't quickly go by it. First of all, they pressed in. What happened? A large number of disciples were created. They strengthened disciples from city to city. They encouraged the disciples. They appointed elders. Basically, they're planting churches everywhere they go, setting up disciples and elders in every city. The power of what's happening here is unbelievable. Why? Because in the meantime of what has to be Paul's worst moment of his life, he stayed faithful to what God had called him to be. How did he do it? You have some notes. I, I want to submit to you that it's an attitude, the correct attitude of how we face this world. Notice some of the things about their attitude. The first thing in your notes there is that they already had a personal relationship with Christ. If you wait until you're in your worst moment of your life to suddenly have a personal relationship with Christ, I don't know how successful you're going to be. You might. I'm not saying you won't be. I'm just saying these guys had it already. So they were prepared to when the, when the rocks started coming at their head, they could then press on anyway because they already knew who God was. They had such a relationship that that didn't sway them. And they continue to press through and see, see incredible victory. That's so important for us to notice. You really see it in Acts 13 when Paul is asked by the city, hey, will you preach? Paul's like, okay. But he doesn't just preach. Notice as you go through verse 14, 15, 16, all through Acts 13, what is he doing? He's tagging the Old Testament, pulling a little bit of Genesis, Exodus, Numbers. He tags a little bit of Joshua in his message, then Judges. He brings in Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, Chronicles. And then in verse 23, he jumps to Jesus Christ's life and basically shows how all of this Old Testament led to who Jesus Christ was. And here's how it applies to you. It's, it's an incredible message. If you want like a synopsis of the entire Old Testament, read Acts chapter 13. So when he was asked, hey, will you preach? He was ready to preach. And we kind of think of preaching as what I'm doing right now, but all of us are called to be ready with the word, to be ready at any moment. Are you ready? Are, are, would you be ready if you were asked to preach? That's the context of this verse, but I mean it in such a simpler way. Every moment you're coming across people 
who need a special word, who need that comfort, who need to know who this Christ is. Are you ready? You will be ready if you've already built the personal relationship, the daily time in prayer, the daily time in the word. You have those, those friends that are solid around you, and you're encouraging each other and helping each other in this. The second thing I notice is they reach people who didn't know the truth. This one's so important to me because, honestly, it would have made a lot of sense for Paul to continue to go after the Jews over and over, just continue to try and reach the, uh, the, the temple and be like, guys, you've missed it. Let me show you again who Christ is. Guys, but that's not what we see in the Bible. What we see in the Bible is him saying, here it is. You're missing it. You're still missing it. All right, forget it. I'm, and I'm going to go to people who want to hear this message of Christ. I think this message is so important for us because we, as Christians, we really like arguing with Christians about things that have very little to do with our life, right? Not many amens. All right. Let me put it a different way. We live in the third largest mission field in the world. We like to think of the United States as this Christian nation, but per capita, it's the third largest, third largest nation of people that say no to who Jesus Christ is. So it might be time to stop debating on Facebook with your Christian friends and get out and start reaching people who need this message of Jesus Christ. People who don't know Christ. People who, when you go and you begin talking with them, they don't know anything about Jesus Christ, and they're very open, very open to what you have to say about who this person is and the comfort that he will bring to their life. We have to get into this train of thought that says, I need to move on from Christian debating and actually reach people with the message of Christ. That's what we see in the Bible. Over and over and over, these missionary journeys were people going and sharing who Christ was with people who didn't know much about him. Here's the thing. God didn't halfway create you. When God, when Jesus Christ left, he sent his Holy Spirit back to dwell within us. Then he says, yeah, you have heaven. Yeah, you have this gift of eternal life. But I'm going to dwell in you so that you can do even greater things. So I'm going to put in with you spiritual gifts, gifts that are unique to each and every one of you. So you will not only have me dwelling in you and guiding you, I'm going to give you special gifts, powers, talents that you can use for me in this walk. Then I'm going to put you in a neighborhood surrounded by people who don't know me. I'm going to put you at a place where you work surrounded by people who don't know you. You could literally walk out of this church and go across the street and find people who don't know me. I'm going to place you like that so that what happens next is the world's changed by you. You're part of the story. We have to get into the mindset that I'm not here by accident. I wasn't halfway created. I'm here for a purpose. Make every day count. The third thing I see is that they don't crumble under pressure. Now, this, I am amazed that he doesn't crumble under pressure. If someone's throwing rocks at me today while I'm speaking up here, I'm probably going to leave, just so you know. He doesn't. 
He goes back, and I will forever be amazed by it. And so when I see this crumbling under pressure, I like to think of it like a hot air balloon, just because I have to analogize everything. A hot air balloon to me is like the Holy Spirit. We have to light the fire. We have to put the fire in there to make it move up. But once it's up, uh, a balloon is really at the mercy of the winds. And so in our walk with God, the way we don't crumble under pressure is we keep lighting the fire of this relationship with God and then let the Holy Spirit guide us. The wind is going to take you where you need to go. As you understand who Christ is, as you understand his plan for your life, the winds will guide you, the Holy Spirit will guide you. But we have to ignite that fire so that we won't crumble under the pressures of life. And they do come. So the first thing was have a relationship with Christ. The second was reach those that don't know you. Third thing I see in these guys is they let God handle the pressures. And finally, as I watch this this story unfold, they gave the glory to God. In the end, we see this, this first mission trip of Paul and Barnabas going from city to city building disciples, encouraging disciples, appointing elders, setting up churches. We see them giving back the glory of God. What we don't see is them talking about how they were wronged in every city, how the enemy came at them and they just, they pressed in and they won. You don't see any of that talk. You just see this God be the glory, God be the glory, God be the glory as they go from city to city. Can we do this as well? The best way to do this is by being faithful. This is in your notes. Be faithful to what God has given you, and you'll be giving glory to God. In our most difficult moments that life has to throw at us, we can read in the Bible and find those that have experienced the same difficult moments. In almost every case, this fellowship of suffering that I mentioned at the beginning, we can see the same experience from our King. We're actually told in Scripture that we share in the sufferings of Christ which is an interesting thought. Theologians, as they, as they examine that scripture, the way that they describe it is he probably means Jesus Christ got hot. Jesus Christ was cold at some points. He got lonely. Uh, he was left out. He was abandoned. He was betrayed. Everything that we have suffered, in some extent, we can see that Christ also went through. He faced a dark night knowing he had to face something that he absolutely did not want to face. We see Jesus really run the gamut of experiences. So whatever we think about the the sufferings that we're facing, we all have this relationship with Christ, this fellowship of suffering with someone who has also faced it, this relationship that someone says, yeah, I've been there. I know what you're facing. Press on. And it goes on, the apostle says, For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, in other words, the parallel that we have here, this relationship between what we have suffered and what Jesus has suffered, in the same way, our comfort abounds through Christ. Meaning we can take comfort knowing that our king was there. Our king knows what we're going through. And then be that comfort to someone else. Be the hands and feet of Christ and that suffering to someone else who needs the fellowship of suffering. Tell him you can make it. You can do this. Don't give up. Don't give up hope. Don't give up faith. God is with you. God will bring you through the difficulty that you're facing, the adversity that you're in. It's not a surprise to God. It's only a surprise to you. 
And God is at work and will continue to be at work. And you don't have to give up hope. For regardless of what you face, you are uniquely positioned in this world to help others. You are uniquely equipped to take to someone else the very comfort that God has given you. And if you choose to do this in the meantime, God's going to use you to do incredible things. So I want to pray for you. I want to encourage you. If you're in one of those moments, know that God is with you. If you know someone that you can be that comfort to, do it. Be Christ's hands and feet to those people around you. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we thank you for this series and a reminder that we are all facing things that we should never have to face, things that are beyond comprehension. And as we look around, God, you want to use us to comfort those that are facing those issues around us, Lord. Give us the boldness to be who you've asked us to be in this world. And God, I pray, Lord, that we would step up and represent you well in all that we do in this world. With every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around, if you're in this room and this message is a little advanced because you're still trying to understand who Christ is in your life, I want to encourage you and I want to pray for you. I'm not going to pull you up front or do anything weird. I just want to encourage you that you're on the right path. Continue to move forward and I want to pray for you. So if you're in this room and you're saying, that's me, I need to just know this king, this savior, I need to know in my life. I just want you to put your hand up and say, that's me. Pray for me. I need this king. Let's quickly lift it up. Amen. Secondly, if you're in this room and you need prayer because you're in one of those moments that no one should have to face, and you would just like some prayer for that, just quickly put your hand up and say, that's me. Pray for me. It's a bit rough. Just quickly lift it up. Amen. God, I lift these up to you, and I ask that you would bring people around them today that would be an incredible comfort to them, and just show them today the peace that you are, and the peace that you bring through those that love you. And God, we just give you all of these in Jesus' name, amen.